One of the things that I loved about Christmas growing up was the anticipation of Santa. Very religious, I know. Um, and I remember my year somewhere in the 80s, I was born in 82, uh, getting the best gift that I've ever received. I've shared this with you before because it's the best gift you can give your child if you love them. Techno Super Bowl for Nintendo. Anybody remember that? Yes, I loved it. Yeah, because it was so realistic. You could run for 100 yards in one play, right? And you could literally be the Bengals and like John Kitna and throw the ball 100 yards because we know that's realistic as Bengals fans, which none of you are, but I am. I'm from Cincinnati. Let's move on. I did some research about some of the games and some of the toys that dominated the Christmas market throughout the years, taking it all the way back to 1979. Before I even existed, who remembered the Atari gaming console system, yeah. computer system? Yeah, my friend, uh, my friend, uh, my friend Forrest, uh, who lived across the street from me, was the first kid on my block to get it, and so he became the most popular kid that we all wanted to hang out with. What about 1982, the year of the BMX bike? Anybody remember those? Yeah. There were two kind of kids in my neighborhood: those who rode BMX bikes and those who rode Schwinn's. And nobody talked to the kids that rode the Huffy bikes or whatever they were called. 1988, the greatest gaming console system to date, Nintendo NES, which uh, parents, if you think your kids struggle with screen time, it started with my generation, okay? Uh, students, don't shoot me, but my parents said you only get an hour a week to play Nintendo, but we got two hours on the weekends. That's back in the day where uh, parents didn't care if their kids were their friends, and they just said, if you're bored, go outside and figure something out, right? And uh, yeah, for better or worse, that's what it was. 1993, the Talkboy, moving up in technology, came out, and I'm, I always associate the Talkboy with uh, Kevin McAllister and Home Alone. Now think about how much we've advanced in our technology. 2019, that's this year, in case you forgot, uh, the the, the toy to dominate the, uh, the market this year is believed to be the Star Wars droid ran by an app on your phone. So we went from the Atari gaming system or computer system, which a phrase computer system just sounds old and outdated to me, to a toy that you could fit in the palm of your hand. And some of you are like, oh, I need to get that, right? Put that on your list. You're welcome. Merry Christmas. And you can run it from an app on your phone. That was... That's not even our thought process in 1979. But the, real, the reality of Christmas is that not every year is awesome. There's sometimes, theoretically, you have brothers that have a better Christmas than you, right? And you have to deal with disappointment. Jimmy Kimmel, who's uh, a demonic genius uh, in his late night show, always asked parents to film their children opening up a fake Christmas gift from Santa and capture the reaction. Yep, we're gonna let you watch it. Here it is. Open it up. You didn't want that for Christmas? You stinking parents! <laughs> Take this back! Take it back where? This is yours. I want a refund! It's a half-eaten sandwich! <clears throat> Isn't that what you asked for? No, I asked for the toy. What did you say about Santa? He put you on a naughty list. Why? Because you gave me a stupid Hello Kitty chance. <laughs> what did you get, Jason? So 
black beans, cheese, and a Waffle House hat. <laughs> There's a bit of an ethical dilemma I have with that. At first it was funny, and then I think of like Paul in Ephesians where he says, dads, don't exasperate your kids. It's a bit of like emotional abuse there, but uh, it was fun to watch. Um, I'll say that. Kids and adults, we deal with disappointment during the holidays, don't we? We, we had hoped uh, that we would land our dream job, and we did, and we hate going to work now. We had hoped uh, that we would be in a better financial position uh, in our life and whatever age uh, demographic you're in. But if we're honest, we're not there yet and the bills keep piling up and Sally Mae keeps calling us to remind us to pay off our loans. We had hoped this Christmas would be any other typical Christmas, but... If we're honest, um, it's not that someone passed away in our family, although that is true for some of us. It's that we have tension with family. We have tension with our friends. And so uh, if you are married, you have to have that awesome and awkward conversation. We've got seven days for the holidays. How many days do we want to give to your folks? How many days do we want to give to our folks? Hope can be a tough thing during the Christmas season. And so we're going to talk about this idea that hope is really for everyone, whether you are convinced that Jesus is who he claimed to be or you're here because you're, you're curious and you're kind of exploring. Let me ask you a question. How is your hope treating you these days? However you want to define hope, wherever you get hope, and don't say Jesus because we're in a church, but what, what are you actually, if it's Jesus, great, but what are you actually banking on? for hope in your life. I think we're in a, um, a, a, a crisis of hope. I think it says something about our country when uh, antidepressants are the top three, one of the top three drugs that we consume uh, as Americans. And uh, I feel like I shouldn't have to say this, but I will because every Sunday there's new people here. Uh, I'm pro pastoral counseling. I'm definitely pro professional counseling. There's a difference. And I'm also pro medication. All of those things can be a relief, a real rescue when we're struggling. Uh, but I do, th- I do think it says something that we can afford $500 Apple watches, and yet we don't know how to deal with broken brains and broken hearts. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for our kids, ranging from the age of 10 to 19. And it just seems like more and more veterans are taking their own lives at home than those soldiers that are losing their lives on the battlefield. How is hope treating you these days? And when we think about the word hope, we probably think a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling we get in listening to a sermon uh, or a Hallmark card that we might read in Target because what else are we going to do with a million people surrounding us? But I'm talking about real hope concrete hope, something we can bank our lives on. Uh, John Eldridge is a popular Christian writer, especially for men uh, and speaker, and he defines hope this way. Hope is the 
confident expectation that something good is coming. That something good is coming. Uh, Let me ask you another question. I like questions. Could you say that about you? Could you say that about your journey? That even in the midst of this Christmas season, you would, you would say that while I have disappointment with my life or with other people uh, in my life or my preferred future really is a bunch of shattered dreams, I, I still hope that something good is going to happen uh, for me and my family in the future. Now, throughout the month of December, we're going to talk about hope in all of its different facets, but today we're going to focus on this idea of hope uh, in the tension of our disappointment with ourselves, with other people, and sure, even with God himself. I want to introduce you, or maybe for some of us reintroduce you, to a powerhouse couple, okay? No, it's not Rodriguez and his wife, or uh, Lopez. Yeah, I should probably think these things down. But uh, it's an awesome power couple in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Their names are Zechariah and Elizabeth. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. We'll start in verse 5. If you don't have a Bible, man, I would really encourage you to download the Bible app, especially if you have no idea where to start reading your Bible. There's tons of Bible reading plans that will help you get started. And really, when you start anything in life, a discipline, it's not about perfection, it's about progress. Start the behavior first, and then the rest will come. I, I want to introduce you to Zachariah and Elizabeth uh, because there's a very real tension in their marriage and in their lives and with their Lord that I think we all uh, wrestle with even today. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, we meet Zechariah at his job. In Luke 1, 5, Luke says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God. God really loved this couple. Observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. That's that's pretty high praise. Uh, But they were childless. Here comes the disappointment. Because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time uh, for the burning of incense came, all of the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Uh, On the back of your Sunday program is a massive blank space for you to take notes. You don't have to take notes here. It's, it's It's your time. But there are some things that I really want you to know about Zachariah and Elizabeth. Here's the first one. They grew up in a family of pastors. They came from family that served and loved God, and it was their job to do it. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, the Israelites were divided into 12 tribes, and the tribe of the Levites, they were were the families that were pumping out kids going to Bible college, right? And so when the Levite families come, I I can identify, I recognize not many people in this room can identify with this, but I can identify with this. All of my brothers are in ministry, and we go home for the holidays, guess who's going to get asked to pray for the Christmas dinner? It's us every time, and that's fine, right? It's like, oh no, the semen boys are coming, you know, watch your language and hide the alcohol, here they come, right? Like, yeah, this, I'm just being honest with you. And more so than that, 
they had children named Zachariah and Elizabeth, and they grew up, fell in love, and they decided to go into ministry. Uh, They came from a long line of pastors and preachers and ministers and and, and leaders in the church, as we would say in 2019 language. Uh, They were both serving in ministry. We we find Zechariah, to use common language today, uh, serving in ministry. He was a pastor. In first century, he was was a priest, right? It's kind of the same deal. And we find him doing a pastoral role. He was serving in the local church, lighting some candles, while the uh, Jewish men and women were outside praying, getting ready for service to start. A lot of what I do and Brian does and, and Andrew and Donna and Jenny do to help uh, run our weekend services smoothly. You, you find a guy that not only loves the Lord, but is willing to give his life to ministry. Here's the third thing you need to know about them. They really loved God. They, like, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, there are some people in ministry, and you're like, okay, you misspelled your name on the SAT test. This is the closest thing you could get. No, no, they really <clears throat> love the Lord, right? I would, imagine, um, <clears throat> I would imagine this couple freely opened their home, invited people over for dinner. Uh, there were people that just generally loved the people at their temple. Number four, or they really love God. In Luke 1, 6, Luke says, Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Not only did they really love God, God really loved them. Now, I don't know about you, I could, <laughs> verse 6 probably would not be a description of me. Because Luke says, uh, this couple observed all of the God's commands in the Torah, the first five books of your Old Testament, all 613 Uh, of these commands in the Torah that the Jews would read and follow, and it's described as this couple doing it blamelessly. Now, there are some people in your life, I'm sure, that you would put on a short list of wondering, have they ever sinned, right? Everyone's grandma would probably be at the top, but below grandma, I (laughs) I don't know how many people that I would think about their life and say, yeah, they were perfect, They really walked with the Lord. They really trusted the Lord, and I would put them on that short list. But Zechariah and Elizabeth, they make the short list. They really love God, and yet here's the tension. They had disappointment with God. And in verse 7, Luke says they were childless uh, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Here you have two kids that grew up in ministry homes, met and fell in love with each other, uh, committed their lives to the Lord to serving in local ministry, and probably had many nights in the love and intimacy of their bedroom before they went to bed praying, hey God, would you give us a child? Would you give us children? And it seemed like for them, that prayer always went unanswered. And you have this very real first century family struggling with this idea of infertility. God, we've done all of these things for you. Could we please bring a child home, right? And you go through that. My friends have gone through that, that are or have wrestled with infertility. Of all of the kids that are neglected and abused in homes around the country and the world, could, could, we, could we have a child that we would actually love, Lord? And it just seemed like that prayer went unanswered for so long. I want you to wrestle with this next question. 
write it down. I don't know if you guys journal or not. I like to journal because I my focus gets sidetracked all the time. And it's just a great way to put all my thoughts and prayers into one space. And so if you journal or if you don't put this in your phone, this is a really good question to wrestle with. Here's the question. How is it possible to be disappointed in someone and yet love them at the same time? How is it possible to be disappointed with God and to love him at the same time? Maybe you grew up in churches where you weren't allowed to say that. You can hear. Maybe you grew up in churches where you're discouraged to say, you know, like in a small group, life group context. Uh, maybe someone said, you know, I really just want to say I'm really frustrated with God right now, but I know that's not the right thing to say. Why not? If you're frustrated with God, say it. It's a very real question that we all struggle with, especially even during the holiday season. A few years ago, my wife and I uh, were having coffee in the morning watching the Today Show, like you do, and uh, Savannah Guthrie and Hoda Kopp came on, and uh, I, something wasn't right, because uh, they weren't smiling, they weren't cheerful, and you could tell that they were processing some deep hurt. And Savannah Guthrie began to tell the world that their dear friend and colleague, Matt Lauer, uh, had been let go due to inappropriate uh, work conduct, I would even say illegal conduct, and you watch these two co-workers process this idea that they love their friend but are very disappointed with him. Uh, I'll never forget what Savannah Guthrie said or asked uh, in that live um, television set, or, uh, uh, set. She said, we're grappling with a dilemma that so many people have faced these past few weeks. How do I reconcile, how do you reconcile your love with someone with the revelation that they've behaved badly? Then she says, I don't have an answer for that. I thought that was beautiful and tragic, but honest. How do, I, how do I process the revelation that someone that I love and have known for you know, 20, 30 years has done something horrible, sinful, I'll even take it another step, illegal. H- how do you process that? And she said, I, I don't... I don't know how to do that. <laughs> and I'm like, welcome to my job. Uh, Mother Teresa, who we might think is, you know, Mary, Joseph, Jesus, Mother Teresa, uh, wrestled with disappointment. On the one hand, you would find writings like this. Uh, it's not enough for us to say, I love God, I do not lo- and, but I do not love my neighbor, she said. Since in dying on the cross, God made himself the hungry one, the naked one, and the homeless one. Jesus' hunger, she said, is what you, f- what you and I must find and alleviate it. That's powerful. But three months earlier, Mother Teresa wrote a letter to her spiritual confidant, the Reverend Michael uh, Vanderpeet, and in the letter she shared some really personal disappointments that she had with God. And an expert, an expert she said, Jesus has, very sp- uh, Jesus has a very special love for you, she assured Vanderpeet, but as for me, The silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see. I listen and do not hear. The tongue moves in prayer, but does not speak. Powerful. I want you to pray for me that I let him have the free hand. That's powerful stuff. Everybody wrestles with disappointment in the midst of looking for hope. Whether you're Savannah Guthrie, whether you're... um, Mother Teresa, or Elizabeth, or Zachariah, or your neighbors. 
we all wrestle with hope in the midst of disappointment. And here, here's, here's what I really want you to wrestle with, is that there are two kinds of people that listen to sermons in terms of the law and morality. Uh, one person is, you know what, I'm not really into the whole God church thing, I'll go because my loved one or family member or spouse goes. It's, it's good for my kids at least. Uh, they could be doing other things that could be destructive, so I'll come. But really, we like, to, we like to hide behind the facade of being a good moral person, but we never really know Jesus. Like that would be like the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees. So there's one kind of person that says, you know what, the God thing, I'll be civil about Jesus, but really, I'm a good person. I host holiday meals. I give to the church. I give to local organizations that support my personal values. But getting crazy, like getting dunked in front of people in December, <laughs> no, no, no thanks. I, I, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm not perfect, uh, but I'll make my own way. The second kind of person is this. Someone that could care less about ethics, other people, and they're just kind of a jerk. And so there's no sense that they have any need or desire to follow Jesus, and, and they just totally want to live in rebellion, and just whatever God says, they're going to do the opposite of that. So what I love about Zachariah and Elizabeth is I think they tend to be over here, right? God, I grew up in a, in a house of preachers, <laughs> church office workers, kids ministry leaders. I serve you in a local church because I wanted to make a lot of money, right? God, I just, I just want a kid. I just want to have a, a son. I just want to have a daughter. I've done all of these things. What's really hard, about, what's really hard and difficult about that is, friends, is that um, our sin offends God and puts Jesus on the cross, and so does our morality, our best days, our good days, right? Like we say to our spouse, I love you. Our, our kids feel loved. We pay our bills on time, right? We remember to make eye contact with our favorite barista at our favorite local coffee shop. And yet our righteousness, as Isaiah says, is kind of like filthy rags. And so both people need the gospel. Whether or not your hopelessness is in a sense of, I've really made bad, poor decisions, or God, you owe me a solid because I've done all of these things for you. What I'd like to do today is uh, hopefully give you uh, a few encouraging pastoral words if you are someone wrestling with hope in the middle of disappointment. You're not going to like the first one, okay? Uh, but it's good for you, I hope. <laughs> uh, number one is that hope says to wait. Ugh. Who loves the DMV? I hate it right? Who loves waiting in line for anything, especially when you're hungry or hangry, as my wife likes to describe me as? Yeah, Jesus is not efficient. Waiting on God is not efficient, but it's necessary, isn't it? Yeah, it's necessary. And, and, and I can imagine uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah going, God, what's the deal? Like, we're old enough to be grandparents, and we don't even have a child yet. And sometimes hope says to wait. And sometimes uh, the gospel says you need to be willing to step into mystery. You need to be okay with the gray. You, you, you need to learn how to process, you know, what happens if my preferred future ends up being shattered dreams. Because when Zechariah is in the temple, <laughs> 
Oh, man, this, I don't like empty churches, especially at night. God shows up in a big way and terrifies Zechariah. In Luke 1, verse 10, he says, When the time came for the burning of the incense, all of the assembled worshipers were outside, were praying outside, right? Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, like nobody else is in the room, standing at the right hand of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. Okay, the NIV is kind of nice. He was freaked out. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call him John. So if you're unfamiliar with the story, this is John the Baptist, the guy that's going to lead the way when Jesus comes and the Christmas narrative uh, lands on earth. In verse 14, Luke says, he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. What a that's fascinating, cool statement. He will bring uh, many people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah, to preparing the way for Jesus. That's what he's talking about here. To turn hearts of the parents to their children. Oh, man, that's a whole other sermon. The beauty of the gospel in the home, if mom and dad and kids are all loving and serving and following Jesus, that's incredible stuff. And he'll turn the, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Hope sometimes says uh, to wait. Zechariah was thrown out of control. Uh, and in all seriousness, a lot like that boy that we saw in the video. There's a Greek word, a very scary Greek word to describe Zechariah's emotional estate. Uh, I may be blundering it, but I'll throw it up on the screen. It's, the word is teresian. It, it means to be startled. It means to be thrown into turmoil and confusion. And it's used of people in the Gospels who were demon-possessed. Have you ever done an extensive... Um, workout or anything for a long period of time, or maybe you're an offender bender, and you just, like, people are asking you questions, and you cannot process, like, what is going on. That's what's happening to Zechariah. Thrown in complete, utter confusion. And he also is described as having phobia, which is our English word for fear. He was gripped with fear, and he felt frightened or terrorized. Have you ever felt terrorized? Like, that's when a prank becomes out of line. Here's a question. Is that really descriptive of the God that you know in the Bible? Like, does God like, like to show up and scare us and <clears throat> make us feel like someone who is demon-possessed, like another thing is taking over our bodies and throwing us out of control? Is, is God the God that likes to terrorize us? Like, especially his pastors? Like, <laughs> I hope not. Oh, man, here's the deal, friends, even for pastors, right? When you've been waiting on something long enough and your perception of God coming through hasn't happened, you kind of like just go your own way, don't you? You kind of got to, you go in that default mode of, well, if God's forgotten me, I'm just going to make it happen. And yes, even pastors like Zechariah struggle in their faith. I mean, we don't have time to go into the weeds of this text, but there's a very real sense that Zechariah is both pastor and really doubting his faith. 
wondering, is God actually going to come through for my family and I? Um, There's a real subtle thing that happens that Luke wants us to know about. And he cares about details because A, he's a doctor, and B, he's a historian. Where did the angel present himself to Zechariah? He was on the right side of the altar. Now, who cares? You do. Here's why. When you stand or sit to the right of somebody, especially in a Jewish meal, that is the seat of power and promise and authority. I can't help but wonder if God is subtly, without words, but with movement, which is often how he speaks, that he's reminding Zechariah and in turn reminding us, I know you have disappointments and your hope, and you love me and you're frustrated with me, but do you want to sit in the seat of authority? Do you want to sit in the seat of power? Is this world about you and we're all just living in it? Is the finality of your life and what you trust in your future, Zachariah, Ben, RCC, do you want that? Do you want to be on the right side of the altar? Do you want to sit in the seat of power? Yes, of course. Because what? We're Americans. When things don't go our way, we're going to take control of it. Zachariah, he gets paid to work at a church. Does the exact same thing. What a beautiful reminder. A subtle reminder. And maybe a terrifying reminder. That in the midst of us wrestling with hope and our disappointment, God asks, do you, do you want that seat? Are, are you ready to handle what you don't know is coming? And so hope says us, so hope invites us to wait. But uh, hope also says to remember. And I love this. Uh, Zachariah's name literally rem- uh, remembers, literally means God remembers. And what I love about that is this, is that for the majority of his marriage, he thought that God forgot about him. God's not going to remember me. God's not going to remember my wife. I've done all of these things for the Lord. I mean, can't I just have a child? Here's why this is important, why you have to lean in and care about this. It's because our disappointments, our uh, 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 pressure points in our life, and this is the language we use at RCC, our death story, that thing that defines who we are, those things shape our identity, the core of who we are. And God's room, God's awesome. He's just reminding Zechariah, hey, did you, did, you, did you forget what I named you? I remember you. I have been faithful to you. I will be faithful to you even into the future. The, the, the tension and the struggle of dealing with disappointment, even in our hope, is that if we let disappointment win out, whatever that looks like for you, those things begin to shape us. I don't care how many times you go to church, how much you give or read the Bible. If we don't give those disappointments and hurts to Jesus, those things will shape us. And why is verse 6 so critical to be before verse 7? Because verse 6 reminds us of who we are at our core. We are beloved sons and daughters of God, regardless of what happens to us, that God chooses to be with us no matter what. Even if, we live in the nece- even if we live in the very common tension of, I really love God, and I'm really disappointed in him right now. Hope says to wait. Hope says to remember. 
And hope says to trust. Another thing that we struggle with, right? That I struggle with. Hope says to trust. In Luke 1, verse 21 through 25, Luke finishes out the story by saying, Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. Well, an angel appeared. It's going to take him a moment to collect himself, right? When he came out, he could not speak to them. Then he realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Man, those are some of the most beautiful moments in our walks with Jesus, where he moves us so much that we don't know what to say. That's good sometimes. And the tears start rolling down our eyes as we listen to a sermon or sing songs in worship or reflect on him in communion. In verse 23, when his time of service was completed, he returned home after his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said, and in these days he has shown his favor and has taken away my disgrace among the people. Infertility is a very real thing. And for Crystal and I, who've had friends that wrestle with this, there is a disgrace associated with women. I wish it wasn't true, but it, it's, it's reality, right? It's reality. And the gospel of hope reminds us to wait, to remember, and to trust that following Jesus is a journey. And it reminds us of who we are and where God actually sits and where Jesus sits. And where Jesus sits is on the right hand of the throne of God. And he's worth loving and being disappointed with at the same time, and yet not walking away from him. Uh, 2,000 years, I don't think this is really an argument, but 2,000 years after the story, the Jewish people suffered the worst, most horrific uh, moment in history, the concentration camps. And when Allied forces came in and took over Auschwitz and liberated the camp, they found these words scratched into the wall in one of the barracks. So beautiful. I wanted to share this with you. I believe in the sun, even though I don't see it shine. I believe in love, even though I don't see it expressed. And I believe in God, even though I can't hear him speak. Uh, I don't know if you'll come back next week. I hope you do. But here's what I want to say. Hope has come for Christmas. And his name is Jesus. And no matter whether you're convinced or curious about him, he invites you to wait on him. He invites you to remember him because he's not forgotten you. And he invites you to trust him, which is that real hope that something good in the future is coming. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for this Christmas and holiday season. What a beautiful invitation that we're allowed to love you and be disappointed with you in the same time, in the same vein. Because after all, <laughs> we are often bad in the presence of love. And that doesn't deter you. That doesn't surprise you or want to make, make us, want to make you leave us. And so we, we celebrate this fact that, that hope has come this Christmas. It's a, it's a real, tangible thing, not something that makes us you know, lighthearted or emotional when we read a Hallmark card at Target. It's, it's a thing that will change the trajectory of our lives. And so as we sing this next song, Lord, I pray that we believe it and we just don't do it as we're going through the motions. We thank you for the hope that invites us to wait, 
uh, to remember and to trust. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.